after hours, the night of October 1st, 1969, in a boutique advertising agency above a flower shop on Melrose in Hollywood, two Rand Corporation analysts made use of a rented Xerox machine to begin the nightly process of photocopying 7,000 pages of classified analysis on the Vietnam War that would come to be called the Pentagon Papers. Tony Russo had left Rand to convert completely to the counterculture and was the primary instigator, so the legend goes. The ad agency was Linda Limited, owned by Linda Sinai, formerly Linda Harris and the future Linda Resnick, the billionaire purveyor of pomegranate juice, Fiji water, and a variety of nuts. But in 1969, the newly divorced Linda was just the renter of the Xerox machine being abused nightly with overages by Rand analyst Daniel Ellsberg, who was smuggling sections of the massive report from his office safe in Santa Monica. There are many accounts of the cloak-and-dagger activities leading up to the Pentagon Papers' revelations, but that well-worn tale isn't the story I want to tell. On one of those nights, Ellsberg slipped in another set of pages he'd simply walked out of Rand with that day, and the document had nothing to do with Vietnam. In the melee of the espionage trial that was to come, this other report never came up. In the nearly 50 years that would follow the leak of those ugly truths about Vietnam, Ellsberg kept the pages in his personal files, quietly waiting. What he had taken was, in fact, a top-secret RAND report titled The 1958 Taiwan Straits Crisis, A Documented History. On the 18th of March, 1975, the Department of Defense redacted large sections of the document to release an unclassified version. It merely suggests that things were more serious than they may have seemed to the public at the time. What secrets lay under those wide black blocks on nearly 60 pulled pages of the report? What story did the full document tell? Ellsberg did what Ellsberg does. The entire document, still technically classified by the Department of Defense, even today, as you listen to this, is here for me to share with you. And what story does it tell? Well, the 1958 crisis isn't usually perceived as a nuclear crisis by the public and most of the lower politicians involved at the time. But what the missing and now found pages make clear is that it very much was. Christian Herter, Secretary of State under Eisenhower, said later, quote, the Cuban Missile Crisis is often described as the first serious nuclear crisis. Those of us who lived through the Kimoi Crisis of 58 definitely regarded that as the first serious nuclear crisis. So, this is how you start World War III in 1958, this time on the Cold War Vault.
The story of Taiwan is complex. Like all histories, where to begin depends on what history you study. How to frame the story depends on what politics you hold. Maybe it begins with the White Lotus Rebellion at the end of the 18th century, fomented by economic discontent, or the Second Red Turban Rebellion of 1854 to 1856. You say, when was the first Red Turban Rebellion? And that would have been the mid-14th century. And if we're going that far back, we'd have to look at the Yellow Turban Rebellion of the second century, which is probably too far afield, but came about because of high taxation and the exploitation of the worker, which is a chronic problem in China, historically speaking. Of course, the sins of Western imperialism always keep a few history professors and literary theorists employed. So, the Opium Wars of the mid-19th century are a good starting point for them. This gave us the first treaty in a series between the imperial Chinese government and Western powers that are known as the Unequal Treaties. And so there are seeds of this discontentedness, and particularly anti-imperialist sentiment. At the end of the 19th century, the First Sino-Japanese War set the stage for the collapsing Qing Dynasty. Then, the expensive failure of the Boxer Rebellion, and the final blow to the old system in the 1911 Revolution, which set up the plot for Bernardo Bertolucci's 1987 film, The Last Emperor, and established the foundation for the feud that would burn in civil war, for either 22 years with a brief intermission for World War II or until today, depending on whether a formal peace treaty is important to you in your analysis. On one side of this conflict were the Chinese nationalists, the Kuomintang, the government of the Republic of China. On the other, the Chinese Communist Party. For this story, we'll refer to them as the nationalists and the communists. Sometimes, Nationalist China and Red China, and rarely but sometimes by the names of their leaders, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. Of course, these are still the parties on either side of the divide, a full century after their founding, and both, it should be said, lay claim to be the inheritors of the legacy of the 1911 revolution, overthrowing the Xing dynasty and the last emperor of China. For all of the resistance and rebellion that bubbled up over the centuries and left the various populations of China aggrieved, our story begins, as it should, after World War II, late in the second phase of the civil strife over leadership and at the dawn of the Cold War. The end of the Second World War meant the end of the brief truce and united front between the nationalists and the communists. By 1946, the Civil War had erupted again. Then, several volumes of history later, on the 1st of October 1949, Mao Zedong proclaimed victory and announced the founding of the People's Republic of China. In retreat, 
if not in defeat, and not yet in total denial, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists retreated to the island of Formosa, which we know today as Taiwan. Though the island was called Taiwan, the nationalists saw it as the last holdout of the legitimate government of China, so long as the mainland was being held hostage by the communists. The Republic of China set up shop on Taiwan and took up the mantle of the country known as China. I should mention that the Republic of China, the nationalists, also controlled the scattering of smaller islands along the coast of the mainland, much closer than Formosa, and even more annoying to Mao. These included and include Matsu and Kimoi, sometimes for various historical reasons referred to as Kingmen. These are general names for groupings of still smaller islands, and together, in the military planning and diplomacy of the time, they are called the Offshore Islands, OSI. So gave rise to the world as it was. Why didn't the now victorious communists simply invade and retake the Wayward Islands? Well, as you might know, there was a Cold War on, and there were big players on the geopolitical stage that took an interest in the happenings in the Asian sphere. In fact, the communists did try to take back the islands. The civil war wasn't over, and the bulk of their rivals were lumped together, holding out on an island a hundred miles away and thumbing their noses at the communists. But Mao had several objectives as far as his interest in those islands, and in 1954 he began to play a very dangerous game. Those moves brought about the first crisis and set the stage for the nuclear danger that would come later. 1954, the first crisis. Before that first crisis of the Taiwan Strait, the United States wasn't particularly motivated to intervene. Truman was disinclined to engage in the ongoing civil war in China, and so publicly backed a policy of non-intervention in 1949. But the outbreak of a similar civil war on the Korean Peninsula illuminated the growing problem of communist incursions into the governmental power vacuums left at the end of World War II. Truman had drawn lines in post-war Europe that were already roping off Soviet expansion. By means still debated, Stalin was put off of a final invasion of Hokkaido that would have very likely created a communist North Japan satellite state, or at least a Soviet client state like North Korea, North Vietnam, or East Germany. And though it was clear that the communists had all but defeated the nationalists, it didn't seem worth becoming mired in an Asian ground war. But then the same divisions erupted in civil war in Korea in 1950, and it was necessary to do something, or at least to be seen to do something. At the outbreak of the Korean War in June, before the United States became militarily involved, Truman saw that unchecked, the juggernaut of the combined Communist Chinese and Soviet Union would present endless challenges to the United States and its counterbalance 
to communist revolutions in Asia and around the world. So in June 1950, Truman declared that the Straits of Formosa, Taiwan, were neutral waters and sent the 7th Fleet to stand as a barrier to the communists, who very much wanted to have their chance to finish the civil war, eliminate the nationalists, and hold up Taiwan as a trophy and a nationally unifying example of the People's Liberation, and more importantly, the power of the People's Liberation Army. The tactic worked, and there remained a stalemate between the two Chinas for the duration of the Korean War. But at the end of that conflict, with Dwight Eisenhower now in the White House in 1953, things changed. Eisenhower pulled the Navy back and ended the enforcement action. This would give the nationalists on Taiwan the chance to resume the civil war against the communists, so the thinking went. Mao was all for it, as it would allow his communist forces the chance to take back Taiwan. Here come into play those troublesome offshore islands, Kimoi and Matsu. In August of 1954, more than 70,000 nationalist troops were sent to those islands. In September, the communists commenced their artillery bombardment. Some might be curious about these distances, so I will clarify. When you imagine Kimoi and Matsu, they are certainly visual distance and possibly strong swimming distance from the mainland. Kimoi is about six miles from the mainland, but little Kimoi, which is really rarely differentiated in the history, is closer. It's just three miles. Now compare this with Formosa, Taiwan itself, which is about a hundred miles away and vastly bigger. So depending on what side of history you're on, Taiwan is claiming islands clearly belonging in the harbors of the mainland or the mainland is overreaching to grab an island that is beyond its purview. In any case, the shelling of the islands was not difficult given their proximity. And so it was in September that Eisenhower needed to take a very hard look at what exactly he was going to do about it. In the first week of September, the United States was preparing to seal the deal on the Manila Pact. This was the informal name given to the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, or CETO, the Pacific version of the Atlantic NATO, though with inherent problems that were the seeds of its own fecklessness and eventual dissolution. Five days before the Manila Pact was signed on the 8th of September, Mao ordered his communist forces to begin heavy bombardment of Kimoi. Two Americans were killed on the day, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Lynn and Alfred Medendorp, along with, eventually, more than 500 nationalist soldiers defending the islands. This likely played some role in raising the ire of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who recommended to the National Security Council that serious consideration be given to using nuclear weapons on Red China. This would not be the last time. This was tabled for the next six months, but in March, Eisenhower calculated that maybe threat alone would be enough to stop the communists. 
The Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, let it be known that the official line of the United States on using nuclear weapons against mainland China was, we're thinking about it. Chief of Naval Operations and member of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Robert Kearney, let it be known that Eisenhower was, quote, planning to destroy Red China's military potential, end quote, whatever that might entail. Also in March, at the peak of the crisis, Eisenhower and his Vice President Richard Nixon made some public declarations that I have mixed feelings about. And if you're a longtime listener to The Vault, you might see how full of bluster the comments actually might have been. Nixon said publicly that nuclear weapons will be used against the targets of any aggressive force. Eisenhower made a now well-known statement that nuclear weapons were interchangeable with conventional weapons, saying, quote, where these things are used on strictly military targets and for strictly military purposes, I see no reason why they shouldn't be used just exactly as you would use a bullet or anything else. All of these comments were orchestrated. They were theater. Dulles, Carney, Nixon, and Eisenhower. For his cavalier attitude after he made that comment at a press conference on the 16th of March, 1955, he spoke for another minute on caveats and the great question of using nuclear weapons on civilians. This is rarely remembered alongside this famous quote about using them like bullets. But context is often lost alongside great quotes and great soundbites. What we need to remember is that Eisenhower was publicly ready to set atomic fire to the battlefield in China. Here are two important points to remember. First, this was all part of a bluff to end the crisis. Second, the possibility of using nuclear weapons would not be forgotten, particularly by the military leadership tasked with creating the plans to use them. As for the bluff, it served two purposes. It was a rhetorical fusillade to back down Mao, but it was also designed to test the resolve of the Soviets. The communist allies who could have come to Mao's aid in promising a retaliatory attack if nuclear weapons were used, demonstrated a very clear unwillingness to threaten any such thing. Mao, feeling very much on his own, backed down. After the first Taiwan Strait crisis, the specter of nuclear use to defend Taiwan would never go away. It has never gone away. More importantly, something called the Formosa Resolution was passed through the U.S. Congress with haste and bipartisan gusto. This made the means of defense secondary to the necessity of defense. This was the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty that promised that the United States would defend Taiwan from Red Chinese invasion. Though no longer in force by that name, it is the foundation on which the precarious peace in the Taiwan Strait was built. It's the foundation of that uneasy truce that the United States has with China today. The first crisis ended 
with a whimper, despite the high tension and high stakes of the endgame. The Second Crisis There had been signs of trouble since July 1958. The first of these was an increased resistance to reconnaissance flights by the mainland. The Nationalists launched air patrols to intentionally trigger air engagements. In the United States, though pressed for a non-nuclear option by the Department of State, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Nathan Twining, let it be known that it was the opinion of the Joint Chiefs that if another crisis emerged in the Strait and escalated, the use of nuclear weapons would be inevitable. At the end of July, the Communists had positioned 200 Soviet fighters at airfields in the coastal city of Shantou. A steady increase in air engagements resulted in 10 shootdowns of nationalist planes. At the same time, artillery was reinforced at coastal positions. Western diplomats were suddenly restricted to the capital in Beijing, and the propaganda surrounding Taiwan intensified. Mao was making a move. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and Mao disappeared into a four-day secret conference that resulted in an August 3rd joint Sino-Soviet demand for the withdrawal of Western troops from the Middle East, which was all part of another 1958 crisis for another time. But what's important here is that it represented an apparently unified Sino-Soviet front. Unlike the first crisis, the Soviet Union made a public pledge to help Beijing in its efforts to liberate Taiwan. In the interval between the first and second crisis, there had also been changes in the defense arrangements between the United States and the Republic of China on Taiwan that set the stage for an even more dangerous confrontation. There had been a decreased U.S. presence in the area, particularly air power, but that was offset by the introduction of more technologically advanced aircraft that were each capable of carrying nuclear weapons and the introduction of the Matador missile. The Matadors were U.S. copies of the World War II era V-1 with some technological modifications. They were surface-to-surface cruise missiles with the capability of carrying the W-5 nuclear warhead, which was a significant weapon with potential yield of up to 120 kilotons. A Matador missile squadron was stationed on Taiwan in February 1958. The Tactical Air Command had developed something called a Composite Air Strike Force, a mobile force with nuclear weapons capability, specifically tasked with engaging in small, localized wars, communist brush fires, like in the Taiwan Strait. On August 3rd, Mao was confident. What we know comes from West German intelligence, as an agency, global and among the best. Mao told the Soviets that his forces were planning an immediate effort to take the offshore islands, to take them or to demolish them. Mao assured Khrushchev that there were 
no plans to take Taiwan itself, but that left a lot of room for miscalculation. Khrushchev communicated the grave risk that Mao would be running if he touched those islands. The Americans would surely be forced to respond, possibly, or even probably, with nuclear weapons. Mao was not bothered by this. If I can digress from German intelligence for a moment, Mao told a Yugoslav official in 1957, quote, We have a very large territory and a big population. Atomic bombs could not kill all of us. This general sentiment lay under Mao's broader military philosophy. Purges, starvation, nuclear war, there will always be more Chinese to fill in the ranks. They can't kill us all. Khrushchev told Mao that any hostilities had to avoid involving the U.S. because the Soviet Union was not in a position to offer armed assistance. But it was clear to the Soviet Union and to many in the U.S. leadership that the communist Chinese were more opposed to, actually, the term in the documents is more fearful of, the existence of an independent Taiwan than they were to a nuclear attack. Let that sink in, especially in terms of the present geopolitical situation. It is in no way clear to scholars or planners that this fundamental philosophical underpinning has ever changed. The commander of the newly created Pacific Air Forces was General Lawrence S. Cooter. On the 7th of August, he unsealed Ops Plan 2558. This was the plan to provide U.S. military support to the Chinese nationalists. The plan was both presumptuous and incomplete. It was divided into three phases. First, patrol and reconnaissance which was already underway at the beginning of August. Second, the defeat of an attacking force, which was simple enough to say, and third, launch air operations to terminate the communist Chinese ability to make war forever. The last phase was as final as it sounds, and it was to be conducted by the Strategic Air Command, which would almost certainly mean nuclear weapons. Though the records show an ongoing battle between the Department of State and Department of Defense about using high-explosive conventional bombs instead of nuclear ordnance. But that didn't mean that nuclear weapons would be limited to the final phase. In fact, General Cooter was particularly focused on the second phase, the defeat of the attacking force. If it came to war, the Pacific Air Forces would be tasked with striking 32 of 62 pre-planned targets with nuclear weapons launched in sorties from Clark Air Base in the Philippines and Kadena in Okinawa. August 15th. A meeting at the Pentagon put the Joint Chiefs, General Twining at the head, in a room with the civilian leadership. Usual suspects were in attendance. National Security Advisor Gordon Gray, 
Secretary of State Herter. Herter said that he needed to understand the war plans for State to proceed. The story was the same, get the airfields, prevent communist access to Taiwan, and defend the offshore islands. Herter asked, is it necessary to use nuclear weapons? General Twining answered this way, quote, yes. Low yield, 10 to 15 kiloton would be used. At this point, the communist Chinese might break off, but if they don't, the U.S. will have no alternative but to conduct nuclear strikes deep into China as far north as Shanghai, involving likely nuclear retaliation against Taiwan and possibly Okinawa and elsewhere. General Twining went on, if national policy is to defend the offshore islands, we must face the consequences. Chief of Staff of the Army Maxwell Taylor asked whether we, the US, wanted to stake so much over these tiny islands. The answer was, for reasons of geopolitical leverage, universally, yes. On the 18th of August, five Guam-based B-47s of the Strategic Air Command were brought into the planning fold for the purpose of striking coastal airfields on the mainland. Those B-47s were equipped with Mark VI nuclear weapons with variable yields that could be tailored to the task. The pieces of the war machine were coming into position. The U.S. was bound by the treaty obligations with the nationalists, by the need to maintain the appearance of strength among the Western allies and the Soviet Union, and by the necessity of resisting the encroaching red menace in Asia. But it wasn't war just yet. At the top of the command structure of U.S. forces, President Dwight Eisenhower continued to resist the now nearly relentless demands of his subordinate commanders to allow for atomic tactics in their planning for war with China and the release of nuclear weapons to them for use. This resistance caused much hand-wringing among the high command. Admiral Harry Felt, commander-in-chief of Pacific Command, added an annex to Operations Plan 2558, Annex H, that offered non-nuclear options for the various phases of response to the communists. This was not his preference, but a response to the near-total civilian resistance to going nuclear with China. This represented a significant change because a conventional war required magnitudes more logistics than might have been planned for a simple, straightforward, and decisive nuclear attack. Without nuclear weapons, the communists would have enough air power to prevent the resupply of the disputed islands. The U.S. would need to engage directly with non-nuclear forces, and this conventional confrontation might not succeed. General Cooter was in full agreement and was concerned that without nuclear weapons, there would need to be constant Air Force sorties in support of the defense of the islands. That would require more logistics and inevitably cost lives. He said, quote, there would be merit in a proposal from the military to limit the war geographically 
if that proposal would forestall some misguided humanitarian's intention to limit a war to obsolete iron bombs and hot lead. That quote is actually taken from one of the still-classified pages describing the debates that surrounded potential military action on the eve of the communist assault. And it illustrates just how passionately convinced those in command had become that nuclear weapons were not just the most effective response to aggression, even an inevitable response, but were a cost-saving, materiel-saving, and life-saving measure. How loud were those voices? How close did they come to convincing the ultimate civilian authority to take nuclear action? Well, let's look more closely at those still-classified pages. On August 23rd, the Chinese communists unleashed their artillery against Kimoi. More than 300 guns fired 40,000 rounds on the first day alone. The communist Chinese air force made strafing runs on the island and sank a nationalist LST. The second day was just as intense, and over the following five days, the bombardment averaged 10,000 artillery shells per day. The heated debate at the highest levels continued every day for weeks, all of September. The significant portion of the exchanges were highly vocal anxieties about the use of strategic air command planes to deliver high explosive ordnance when single-shot nuclear bombs were there to be had. But no one summarized the debate, the sentiment, and even the anger better than General Cooter. On the 31st of August, he wrote to the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, Thomas D. White, and said, quote, If we must fight the war with high explosive weapons, it is in the best interests of the security of the country that part of the load be carried by the great bomb-carrying capacity of the B-36s or B-47s, rather than expanding the forces of this command, which have also been organized, trained, equipped, and positioned for the primary mission of nuclear strikes in a general war. I know that for many of you listening, this may send shivers through your feelings about Vietnam and the persistent resistance to using maximum force. Well, you can mark this as the start, because even as the crisis was unfolding, B-52s on Guam were being prepared for conversion to conventional bomb racks instead of the brackets for nuclear weapons. The crisis wore on through September. Much of the debate in the historical documents is defined by a faction in the Pentagon believing that the nationalists were engaged in an elaborate plot to draw the United States into a ground war, and others who thought that the idea was absurd. The communists continued to attack coastal installations with artillery and by the 16th of September, the U.S. intelligence estimate reported that the Soviets knew about the communist actions and generally agreed with what Mao was doing, but they would not intervene if the U.S. attacked coastal areas with non-nuclear weapons, though the estimate also said that the communists were entirely willing to risk U.S. involvement. You'll remember what I said about Mao's sentiments before. Then, on the 19th of September, a lot of 
hearsay through the intelligence vine brought something particularly disturbing. The Yugoslavian ambassador told the Indians, who told the Canadians, who told the U.S., that the Russians said that if the U.S. uses atomic weapons on the mainland, then the Russians will use atomic weapons against the 7th Fleet and destroy it quickly. This came in a diplomatic cable from New York. And if true, which it was, it would fundamentally change the response to the grinding conventional bombardment by the communists. This is when the 1958 Taiwan Strait crisis truly became a nuclear crisis, but a conflict between two nuclear-armed parties and assurances of use. In the first days of October 1958, on patrol in the South China Sea, a Navy pilot aboard the carrier USS Lexington, Ted Petrowitz, was settling in for the evening movie when it was abruptly stopped. The announcement came, all flight personnel to the ready room. What he heard was not entirely unexpected. Tensions had been rising for weeks as Red China bombarded the offshore islands, creating an ever-escalating international incident. The briefing was on the plan to attack the communist Chinese airbase at Nantai. Details on anti-aircraft, weather, and escape routes were laid out. Of particular note was the clarification that the morning would bring a conventional weapons attack only. The attack would be carried out by the aircraft of the Lexington, the Midway, and the Bonham Richard. In addition, bombers of the Strategic Air Command, stationed on Guam and Okinawa, were ready to fly. After they were dismissed, Petrowitz took a shortcut through the hangar deck to get back to his quarters and noticed something strange. Seven FJ-4 Furies were being loaded with nuclear weapons. He mentioned it as he passed, asking what they were for, given that he was just told it was a conventional attack. The ordnance man explained, with apparent wisdom beyond his position, that the conventional attack would bring down the Russians, then the Russians would retaliate with nukes, and the carriers would have to send the nukes into China. Petrowitz, at the end of this clarification, gently patted a nuclear weapon hanging from one fury and went back to his quarters to sleep. What wasn't discussed at all in policy and planning circles was the possibility that there would be no retaliation it was simply matter of course. In practice, it didn't really matter. At some point, it would have to come to blows with the Russians. As that aviation ordnance man had already surmised and explained to Ted Petrowitz on the USS Lexington. In fact, Petrowitz did get to sleep that night, though briefly, and returned to the ready room as ordered at 0430. Last-minute details were briefed, though still no mention of a nuclear component. And then, an interesting thing happened. Usually, air crews were ordered to their aircraft 30 minutes prior to launch. That would have been 0530. The order would come on a teletype in the room. 30 minutes came and went, and there was no order. Time went on. 30 minutes to the appointed launch. 20. 10. Still no order. 
and then the teletype rattled out the word, hold. 30 minutes later, postpone. What Ted Petrowitz had witnessed, and so many years later described, was the end of the 1958 crisis. Nuclear-armed and ready-to-fly, aircraft of the Lexington and other U.S. carriers waited, but no order came. The second Taiwan crisis had been diffused by forces other than the primordial atomic. It was human nerves, boisterous bravado, suspicion, second guesses, and fear on both sides. As the communists began to run low on artillery shells and began to feel the sting of losing five MiG fighters to nationalist forces using entirely new technology in the form of Sidewinder missiles, the first air-to-air missiles, Mao reassessed his position. On October 6th, the state news agency in Beijing announced a ceasefire to save the lives of non-existent communist compatriots allegedly operating in nationalist territory. In an act of crisis diplomacy, in which reciprocation means far more than diplomatic rhetoric, the U.S. and nationalist forces ended the convoy and patrol operations that had been agitating the situation. On the 25th of October, the communists announced a ceasefire on odd-numbered days. The nationalists followed along, occasionally firing on passing ships from Kimoi, eventually settling on firing only on even-numbered days. In the latter years, this exchange became one of bursting shells filled with propaganda leaflets. But it went on until 1979. While the secret pages recently revealed may not tell an entirely different story from what we've been allowed to read in the declassifications since 1958, they do clarify the far more looming specter of nuclear first use than previously known. In the approximately 60 pages leaked by Daniel Ellsberg, but otherwise still classified, what becomes clear is not only the insistence on the use of nuclear weapons, but the perceived near-inevitability of it. Because Taiwan must be protected, for reasons as real today as they were then, if the communists changed the balance and attempted to simply take the island, then war would necessarily follow. And in 1958 particularly, nuclear war. Mao was voracious for those islands, including Taiwan, but in that moment paused and began the slow cadence of a much longer game. Unfortunately, the responsibility of resolving the end game would fall to the future, the years in which we now live. The fundamental stubbornness of Taiwan never changed, nor did the imperial ambitions of the communist Chinese. 
the government on Taiwan, of Taiwan, unilaterally declared the civil war over in 1991, which, like so many post-Cold War gambits, was a myopic, self-defeating attempt at reconciliation, or gentle coercion of the people and the party, but in the end only served to feed the dragon. The fact is, the narrow span of water between the mainland and Taiwan, known as the Taiwan Strait, remains as likely a flashpoint for the Third World War as anywhere else on the planet, as likely as Berlin and Cuba in 1962. The dealings and duplicities of the communist Chinese are designed to push at the edges of their empire now more than ever, testing the literal waters, taking the temperature of their would-be adversaries, measuring their own capacity to absorb a modern war, and measuring their future enemies' ability to chew through Mao's expendable billions. The more distracted those who might be allied against them in the future become, the more emboldened in their crusade. Daniel Ellsberg, after he stole and copied the classified report on the 1958 crisis, didn't release it. He sat on it for decades, and in fact, when he did make it public, it was in a most subdued way. He simply didn't see the urgency in 2017, as late as that might seem to many of you, and certainly to me. And so he silently posted the pages to his personal website as an addendum to a new book, The Doomsday Machine, after Bloomsbury was reluctant to publish still-classified pages for fear of legal action, but with renewed focus on a simmering pool of Chinese ambition in the South China Sea and in vulnerable economies around the world, now it seems is an excellent time to see the debates that took place in 1958 what it might have required to push the military into nuclear use, and what pulled those actors back from the brink. Certainly today, China is far more capable than it was in 1958, or even during the third crisis, though that is for another day. But compensating for that nuclear arsenal and ever-growing blue water navy is the ever-present sentiment in defense circles the voice in the ears of planners, that China is a paper dragon, that their technology, almost entirely stolen replications of original work, would simply fail under the pressures of a real superpower-sized conflict, that pressed by the exigencies of a national wartime mobilization, a Chinese civilian population grown soft and accustomed to a prosperous middle class would simply revolt. And those same cultural divisions that made holding China together over the last 2,000 years, the primary financial expenditure of every dynasty, would re-emerge, and the country as a whole would falter and fall. This, of course, is a great gamble. And while the collapse of that regime is certainly an appealing outcome for much of humankind, particularly if it avoids a near-inevitable nuclear war, wishes just don't make it necessarily so. There are so many unknowns in the field of relevant policy, known and unknown unknowns. But what has remained a constant 
is that precarious balance of the Taiwan Strait. Only one misstep, one miscalculation, and the next Taiwan crisis goes up like a paper lantern. Thanks for listening to The Cold War Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. Follow us on Facebook for all of the newest information. And consider becoming a Patreon subscriber, where all of the documents classified and declassified will be available for this episode. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, especially on Apple Podcasts. That list makes a huge difference. And I will let Wallace Shawn, the immortal Vizzini, give you some parting words of wisdom. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. Until next time.